Hello everyone, Al from Point of Insanity Game Studio, and coming at you with another episode of Geekery in general, and going to continue taking a look at some of the Outer Planes as presented in the uh, first edition Manual of the Planes book, and going to take a look at some possible historical and mythological inspirations for uh, the plane of the seven heavens. So last time we talked about the nine hells. So I suppose it makes sense that we can also take a look at the seven heavens. And now this idea that heaven or, you know, this paradise for the, you know, righteous dead, deceased, the idea that heaven is going to have multiple layers is certainly not a new idea, and it appears in many ancient cultures. We can trace it even as far back as the ancient Mesopotamians. We could draw upon Dante again, just like we did when we were talking about the Nine Hells, but... Dante actually used ten heavens when he covered the paradise portion of the Divine Comedy. And he had these different planes represented by the sun, the moon, the five visible planets, the fixed stars, the primum mobile, and beyond that, the empyrean. So we're going to talk about those in just a moment. And you know, actually, this idea of the ten layers, we saw that in both Inferno and Purgatory. Now, again, we just mostly talked about the nine layers of hell, but technically, in Dante's view, there was that tenth layer, which was the the area outside of hell. And that was, as you might recall, if you listen to my episode on the nine hells, That was the home of the opportunists, the people who never really took a side. They just kind of worked for whatever was going to be in their best interests. Well, in Purgatory, the second part of the Divine Comedy, there's also ten layers. And Dante pictured Purgatory as a mountain because in his view, when Lucifer fell from heaven... And he hit the earth so hard, the impact, it created the pit known as the Nine Hells. And then the, well, all that rock that got hit from when he fell to the earth had to go somewhere, and it ended up forming a mountain in the Southern Hemisphere. In Dante's view, he placed the Nine Hells as being underneath Jerusalem. And he thought that in the Southern Hemisphere... It was just mainly water, so it was the only mountain down there. And, of course, we know that's quite wrong. But, anyways, as he viewed purgatory, the first layer was the excommunicated. The second layer was, the, or not really layer, but uh, he called them terraces. The second terrace was the late repenters. So these were people who... They were sincere in their conversion, but they just didn't do it until near the very end of their life. The next seven terraces 
represent the seven deadly sins of pride, envy, wrath, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. And then finally, at the top of Mount Purgatory was the Garden of Eden. So that represented the earthly paradise. Now, when we take a look at paradise, he actually envisioned it as a series of spheres, which, not surprising that he would envision it in that way, because there were ancient cosmological models that pictured everything moving on a series of crystal spheres, because the circle was seen as a perfect shape, and it would make sense then that everything would move in these perfect circles. And uh, just a little astronomy for you, you may have heard of something called retrograde motion. And this actually was something that threw a monkey wrench into this idea of the crystal spheres. Because if you watch the planets as they move through the sky, you'll notice that eventually they start to appear to move backwards in their orbit, and then they would start to move forward again. This uh, put a monkey wrench in the whole idea of everything moving in perfect circles. So in order to explain that, an astronomer named Ptolemy, he envisioned something called epicycles. So he argued that as the planets were moving around the Earth, they also moved in these circles in their orbits. And again, it kept this idea of the Earth being the center of the universe, and it also kept this nice, neat idea of everything moving in perfect circles. However, there was another problem with these epicycles. As astronomers used them to try to predict where the planets were going to be, they found that this series of epicycles they were used to working with wasn't always accurate. So the only solution was to create more elaborate systems of epicycles. And I remember in one of my astronomy classes in college, the professor gave a quote, and I don't remember if it was by just if it was by a scientist or just someone else from way back in the day, and I apologize, I forgot the guy's name, but uh, he, when he, someone was trying to explain epicycles to him, he made the comment, if I had been there to advise the Almighty at the creation, I would have suggested something simpler. And of course, now we know the whole crystal spheres and the epicycles, that's a bunch of hooey, but back then, with the limited amount of observational equipment they had, it was the best they could do. So, back to Dante. Now, he had these various spheres, not only connected to one of the five observable planets and the sun or the moon, but they were also seen to be represent the seven virtues, which we'll be talking about later on. But the first sphere of heaven was the sphere of the moon. And just as the moon is ever-changing, the moon is the sphere for people who were inconsistent or who had abandoned their vows. So, you see, in a way, uh, his view of paradise, of heaven, was not too much different than his view of purgatory and also hell, because 
he liked to picture that in the afterlife, what you got, what you deserved, and the the uh, sphere of heaven you were sent to all really depended on how strong your virtues were. The people who were placed in the first sphere, again, they tried to lead good lives, but they were weak in the virtue of fortitude. The second sphere was the sphere related to Mercury, and this was the sphere where the ambitious went. Now, these were people who did commit good acts during their lifetime. However, they did so more out of a sense of their personal fame or how other people would see them as opposed to any true steadfast dedication to committing good acts. So these people, while good, they were weak in the virtue of justice. Next is Venus. And as you might suspect, Venus is associated with love and lovers. So these were people who were good at heart, but they loved other people more than they loved God. So while they were good, they lacked the virtue of temperance. Well, next is the fourth sphere, and this is the sphere of the sun. And the sun sphere is where we find the wise. During this phase of his journey, he meets up with several figures and various uh, church leaders who were associated with wisdom. Well, the fifth sphere is associated with Mars. And as you might suspect, this was the resting place of the virtuous warriors. So these were people who gave their lives in service to God. They were seen to exemplify virtue of fortitude. The sixth sphere belonged to Jupiter, and this was the home of the just rulers. So this is where Dante meets various kings and rulers who are known for their virtue and their sense of justice. The seventh layer is the sphere of the contemplative. These are the people who are more like the philosophers. The eighth sphere represented the fixed stars. And here's where we he sees represented the virtues of love, faith, and hope. The ninth and outermost sphere is the outermost sphere of the geocentric universe model, which is called the primium mobile, so the first moved. And this was the realm of the angels. And then finally is the abode of God, which he pictured as a series of uh, three circles, which were supposed to represent the trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And as I mentioned at the start, there were many other situations where people imagined heaven as being several layers. So as we move towards talking about the seven heavens, there's a couple other religions we need to talk about. First is Buddhism. Now, Buddhism also had a similar concept of a multi-layered heaven. To go back to our episode we did on the nine hells, they also held a similar belief in a multi-layered hell that they called Naraka. It's actually similar to the Catholic belief in purgatory, in that Naraka is a place of temporary as opposed to eternal punishment. So 
while the soul might spend thousands, maybe even millions of years there, it was not a permanent place of punishment. Eventually, the soul would be able to move on, even if it did take an incredibly long amount of time. So why seven, though? Why did Jeff Grubb, when he wrote the Manual of the Plains, choose to make seven heavens instead of following uh, Dante's vision of the nine plus one? Now, I can only guess, but I do have my own personal theories. Possibly, it is due to the fact that seven is considered an important or lucky number in many parts of the world. So therefore, I mean, you think about it, Dungeons and Dragons, while it originated in the U.S., it has become a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, you'll find people who like to play Dungeons and Dragons in many parts of the world. So you're going to have this this game being played by people from different cultures. So by using seven layers, it gives it a sense of universality. Because again, it's one of those numbers that lots of different people from lots of different cultures, they're going to see significance in the number seven. For example, we've got the seven classical planets. And those are the five planets you can see without a telescope and the sun and the moon. Because remember, long ago, in some parts of the world, they considered the sun and the moon planets. There's also the seventh day of the week, which Sunday is the Sabbath, which, according to the book of Genesis, the seventh day is when God rested. So that day, that that could be another reason why we see seven as considered a an important number. And just like there were the seven deadly sins, there's also the seven virtues. Prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, faith, hope, and charity. Now in Japanese culture, we also have a group of deities known as the seven lucky gods. And the seven lucky gods were said to bring about luck and prosperity. And I actually remember seeing the seven lucky gods in an anime series I used to watch, Ranma One Half. In the first of the Ranma One Half movies, Ranma and his friends struggle against a group called the seven lucky gods martial artists. Also, in some cultures, we have the belief of the seventh son of a seventh son. So this was uh, significant because you would have an unbroken line of male children. So someone would have to have had seven consecutive sons, and the seventh of those seven consecutive sons would have also had to have had seven sons. Now, depending on what culture you came from, being the seventh son of a seventh son could be a good thing or even a bad thing. In Irish folklore, it is believed that the seventh son of a seventh son would be a gifted healer. However, in Latin America, it is believed that the same individual is fated to become a werewolf unless he gets baptized in seven different churches. Also, the concept of seventh son of a seventh son 
did inspire a concept album by one of my favorite musical groups, Iron Maiden. And this was, of course, their, wait for it, their seventh studio album. Now, it is also interesting to note that the model of the Seven Heavens, as pictured in the first edition Manual of the Plains, is actually not that different from how some Muslims interpret heaven. The Muslim holy book of the Quran refers to seven, and I'm probably going to be mispronouncing this word, uh, it refers to seven Sama'awat which that word is roughly translated to heaven or paradise. However, not all Muslims agree that this is to be interpreted as a realm with seven layers. It is possible that the the number seven in this case may have been meant to refer to many layers as opposed to a specific number. Because uh, when I was doing research for this episode, um, there are some Muslims that actually picture it as having a hundred layers. So, as I said, it, it, it's still an interesting idea, though, because each heaven is said to be made of a different material. And this actually corresponds very closely to how the seven heavens are presented in first edition. Not quite a perfect match, but as you're, you, you're going to find out uh, later in the show... Not that far from it either. The first heaven was said to be made of silver. The second, gold. The third, pearl. The fourth, white gold. The fifth, silver. The sixth, garnets and rubies. And then finally, seventh would be the divine light of God. As far as I could tell from my research, these descriptions, they may have come from uh, something called a, a hadith. The word hadith translates to report. So these were not considered the words of the Prophet Muhammad, but rather these were narratives of things that he may have said. Not all Muslims, though, accept these. So just like with some denominations of Christianity, they don't accept all of the books of the Bible as part of the canon. Now, again, I'm not saying that Jeff Grubb was aware of you know Islamic influence there, but it is still, like I said, very close. So I just thought that was interesting. So here is how the seven heavens are presented in Dungeons & Dragons 1st edition. Now, the first is Lunia, the silver heaven. This is said to have a night sky illuminated by stars, and it's located on the shores of a great ocean. Portals to the seven heavens from the astral plane always empty out into this ocean. Also, this ocean acts as holy water, so this prevents most lesser forms of evil creatures from being able to enter the plane. This does present a bit of a problem, though, because you're eventually going to have some traveler stumble through the portal and find himself drowning in the ocean. Especially if you're considering you've got like maybe a, you know, a big bulky fighter or paladin in uh, plate mail armor. Fortunately, there are some entities that will help. According to Manual of the Plains, Lunia 
is home to a Japanese god named Ebisu. Talked about the seven lucky gods before. Ebisu was one of these seven lucky gods. Actually, he fits in very well here because he is the patron of fishermen. And it's said that he would often appear as a a person with a fishing pole and usually having some fish with him. So Ebisu would then uh, rescue people who were drowning in this ocean. And again, going back to the uh, Ranma one-half movie, Ebisu did appear in this where he was pictured as a short person with a fishing pole that he used as a weapon. Another god that is pictured as residing here is the Babylonian god, Giru. He is the god of fire and is also the patron of the arts because the discovery of fire allowed for human civilization to progress. He's also seen as the protector of families as well as the mediator between gods and men. And this is because his fire is what brings a worshiper's sacrifice to the gods. Next is Merkia, and this is the Gold Heaven. The most well-known resident here is Bahamut, the Platinum Dragon. This is the place where noble warriors rest. It's similar to Dante's Fifth Heaven. There are a couple of Hindu gods that are said to reside here. One of them is Vishnu. He is one of the supreme gods of Hinduism. Now, in Hindus have three supreme gods, Brahma, the creator, Shiva, who is the destroyer or the transformer, depending on the translation. And finally, there is Vishnu, the protector, the preserver. It is said he often sends an avatar to the world when it is threatened by chaos and evil. He was also said to have defeated Vritra, which is a serpent who causes drought. Also, as a side note, some Hindus consider the Buddha to be one of Vishnu's avatars. The other is Surya, and this is the Hindu god of light, day, and the sun. He is depicted as driving a chariot drawn by... Guess how many? Seven horses. And there's that number seven again. And these seven horses were said to represent the seven colors of the rainbow. Third is Venya, the pearl heaven. And it's said that this heaven is lit by a soft white glow. It is notable for being the home to the halfling deities. Four is Solania the Electrum Heaven, and it's said this realm has silvery sky with mountains and valleys shrouded in mist. It is said to be the destination of pilgrims seeking answers, so in that regard it can be considered similar to Dante's view of the fourth heaven being home to the wise. It's also home to some of the dwarven gods, most notably Moradin, who is the father and patron god of the dwarves. Manual of the Plains also puts two Chinese gods here as well. The first is Quan Yin. She is the goddess of mercy and compassion, 
though it's said sometimes she can appear as a young man. She's revered not only in Buddhism, but also in Taoism and Chinese folk religions as well. There's also Cheng Kul, and this is the god of learning and testing. And interestingly enough, he was also said to be the vanquisher of ghosts and demons. Now, according to legend, he was very intelligent, but disfigured. So he was not allowed to take the imperial examinations. He committed suicide, and because of this, he was sent to hell. While there, Yama, the king of hell and the judge of the dead, decided to call him the king of ghosts, and he ordered him to hunt down and capture evil spirits. Next is the fifth heaven, Mertian. This is the platinum heaven, and it is said to be a vast plain dominated by black domes. It's similar to the second level in that it's a marshalling ground for paladins. And as a side note, Islamic tradition places the avenging angel and his court here as well. And again, if we go back to Dante, in his view, the fifth heaven was the home to, well, was associated with Mars, so it was home to virtuous warriors. Six is Jovar, the heaven of gems. It's described as a celestial vault glittering with gems. Grubb doesn't go into detail, but he writes that there is rumor to be a council of ruling archons here. This does make sense because in a lot of Mideast religions, whether it's the monotheistic religions or uh, some of the pagan religions, it is not uncommon to see that there's this council of gods, or, or in the case of the monotheistic religions, God and has a council of angels. It is said that they reside in an endless ziggurat that holds the entrance to the next and final level, which is Kronios, the illuminated heaven. Now, this would be similar to Dante's 10th level, as it is written to be the home of the supreme lawful good deity. Jeff Grubb wrote that very few people pass along what this realm is like because most people don't return. He writes that any good-aligned being that ventures to this plane will have his inherent goodness and benevolence rise up to join the plane. Those who are not good-aligned will be snuffed out. It's similar in a way to the Buddhist concept of nirvana. See, Buddhists believe that there is a cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth. And it's a similar concept that we also see in Hinduism. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. Now, the Manual of the Plains does detail some other beings that we can find in the Seven Heavens. First, there are Solars, Planetars, and Divas. Now, I couldn't really find much historical inspiration for solars and planetars, so I'm going to assume that they were probably intended to be generic representations of angels, as some theologians do actually believe that there is a hierarchy of angels. 
Devas, though, are entities that appear in both Hinduism and Buddhism. Now, in Hinduism, these are spiritual beings that represent an element or a virtue. Buddhism, though, they're not gods, but rather they're highly enlightened beings. They're not quite at the same level as the Buddha, though, because they are still bound to samsara. And samsara is that cycle or that wheel of birth, life, death, and rebirth. Buddhists and Hindus believe in karma. This is going to be an oversimplification, but essentially, as you go about your daily life, your actions will get either good karma or bad karma. And if you if you have enough good karma, you'll move up to the next state in your next life. If you have more bad karma, though, you will move down a step. Classical Hinduism, there were four or five castes. The highest caste were the priests. Below them were the warriors and the administrators. Below that were the artists and the merchants. And then below them were the peasants, the farmers. But there was also a fifth caste, the untouchables. So let's say that you were born into a merchant family. It is expected then that you your goal in life to was to be a good merchant. And if you were a good merchant and got a lot of good karma, you would move up to the next caste where you might be reborn into a family of a, a warrior or an administrator. However, if you weren't a very good merchant or got a lot of bad karma, you would move down in your next life where you would become a peasant. And below that would be the untouchables. And these are people who were only given the most menial and unwholesome tasks in society, like handling dead bodies or handling dead animal carcasses. And if you fell below that, you would become reincarnated as an animal. And then I think below that it it goes down to various ghosts, but uh, you could even maybe come back as a rock, at least according to one of my religious studies professors. So what do you do if you're reincarnated as a rock? Well, you be a good rock until you get eroded away, and then I guess you, you move up another step. Divas in Buddhism, they are people who had, they had moved above humanity. So they're, they were a step above humanity, and not really, not quite gods, and they definitely had not reached the same level as Buddha. Because the Buddha and people who had achieved enlightenment had actually managed to move beyond this wheel of reincarnation. They escaped the cycle. Divas, despite being powerful and highly enlightened beings, they were still part of the cycle. So as a result, it is still possible for them to move a step down. Now the Manual of the Plains also talks about archons, and this comes from a Greek name meaning ruler. Now so far, a lot of the things I've looked at actually fit in quite well with the concept of the seven heavens. Archons, not so much. If we look at them historically, they're actually very much out of place. 
So to understand archons, we need to make, take a look at a religion called Gnosticism. I took an entire class on Gnosticism back in college. And Gnosticism is hard to really define because there's a lot of different types of Gnostics. There are Jewish Gnostics. There are Christian Gnostics. Uh, Gnosticism also has some ties to a lot of the Mediterranean mystery cults. And not only that, uh, it's said that they also drew inspiration from various ancient Greek philosophies as well. So much of what we know about Gnostics and Gnosticism comes from a series of works called the Nag Hammadi Library. It's a collection of manuscripts that's written in Coptic, which is essentially when you're trying to write the Egyptian language, but you're using the Greek alphabet. And this is tricky because there are some sounds in one language that might not appear in the other. So how did the Gnostics view archons? They saw archons as these beings that tried to keep humanity from returning to the living father, to the light. And chief among these archons was Ildeboa, the demiurge. And he was seen as the architect of the material world. His name translates something to the effect of child of chaos. Now, the Gnostics equated Ildeboa with the god of the Old Testament. So they were not very, that's one of the reasons they weren't very popular. Gnostics also believed in a multi-layered heaven, but it's not exactly the type of heaven most people are thinking of. So to understand the Gnostic view of the heavens, we have to take a look at some of the core beliefs of Gnosticism. One of the books that gives us a lot of information about it is a book called The Apocryphon of John. And it is said to be a collection of secret teachings that were given to the Apostle John by Jesus. So this is where we learn quite a bit about Gnostic cosmology. According to the Gnostic teachings, above the physical world that we know is something called the planora. This is the light where the Godhead resides. So this is what they call the the true God or the living father. And it is said that this Godhead figure, the living father, had emanations. And these emanations came out in male-female pairs. These formed the aeons. The final and weakest of these was Sophia, who represents wisdom. Now, Sophia tried to emanate without her male counterpart. So, as a result, she gave birth to Ildeboa. Ildeboa was ignorant of everything above him, so he declared himself to be the only god. And he created his host of archons and and followers, and they tried to create the first man. So they tried to create Adam. However, as I believe the, the text read, when they tried to create him, he squirmed like an abortion. So obviously their attempt to create 
life had failed. So what Sophia did is she had tricked Ildeboa into breathing his spiritual essence into Adam. So this not only animated him, but it also gave him wisdom. And in that regard, it made him superior to Ildeboa. This made Ildeboa furious. So what he decided to do is he created the physical world and he also created Eve. However, again, the uh, creation of Eve um, in the Garden of Eden, in, in the Gnostics' view, was again actually caused by Ildeboa separating this divine light from Adam into now two entities. This actually ended up liberating Adam because once Adam perceived Eve, he sees within Eve a reflection of his own essence and thus is freed from the power of Ildeboa. So we've got a couple of female characters here that were very important. Ildeboa, of course, is not happy, so he creates the ability of reproduction because, well, he wants to create new human bodies to trap bits of the light in, of the, you know, the bits of the the true father. Gnostics believe that when you die, your soul, this this tiny spark of the light, tries to return from where it came. In order to do that, it would have to pass through these heavens. At the gateway to each heaven was an archon. And this is where the gnos in Gnosticism comes from. Gnostics spent their life trying to acquire gnosis, or knowledge, because it was believed that once you got to one of these archons, you had to answer a question. If you answered the question, you were allowed to pass on to the next gate, and presumably you'd have to, you'd have to answer an even more difficult question. And if you managed to get past all these archons, then you would finally be allowed to join the, the light. However, if you failed, you were forced to go back into the world to be reborn. And this was not done out of any sense of compassion. It was because Ildeboa wanted to trap these, these souls in the material world so that they would continue to suffer. So the only way to escape having to suffer in the material world was to get past the Archons so you could rejoin the light. And this is where, in, uh, for the Christian Gnostics anyway, this is where Jesus plays an important role. Because it is believed that Jesus, he of course comes from the light, and what he was doing on earth is he was trying to teach people how to acquire this gnosis, this knowledge that they would need to rejoin the, the living father so that they would be spared from death and damnation. Now, it was also mentioned that he who decided to share these revelations for personal profit would be cursed. So again, you can kind of see how Gnostics were not very well received, as at least by Christians and Jews, because for starters, they told people that you know, your God is not the true God. He's just, you know, a, a cut-rate, bootleg, knockoff God. He's not the real deal. 
Also, they uh, have some strong female characters in here. And again, Eve is actually not responsible for the fall, but rather Eve is responsible for Adam's redemption. And not only that, uh, in their scriptures, they believe that Jesus will curse anyone who shares these revelations for their own personal profit. Now, while you were listening to me describe and talk about Gnosticism, you might be thinking, okay, wait, wait a second. We've got a religion that essentially believes the the real world, the material world is not all that we think it is. They believe in reincarnation. Your goal is to escape the material world. Salvation comes through knowledge. And ignorance is what keeps man trapped in this cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. Now, I've talked quite a bit about Buddhism in this episode. So you might thinking, you know, Gnosticism sounds kind of like Buddhism. There are some religious scholars that have suggested that the two religions could have been inspired by each other. However, that is not a very widely accepted theory among religious scholars. Well, I think I'm going to wrap this episode up here. So that's about all I have to say about the seven heavens for now. And again, just focused on uh, the first edition because that's the only manual of the planes I have. Um, I'm thinking second edition, they called it uh, Mount Celestia. And I'm not sure what they called it in third, fourth, and fifth edition. Um, So I'm not sure if they decided to go back to the seven heavens or not, or if they continued in the tradition of, of, of second edition, where they tried to take some of the outer plane names that have religious connotations, tried to do away with that. So with that said, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.